0: I know uh, like me, you were involved in keeping tabs on what's going on in the world and, and just this horrific scene of unprovoked violence, warfare, invasion. Uh, it is absolutely surreal. It is surreal for all of us. Uh, I'm a child of the 80s, proud and loud <laughs> child of the 80s. And uh, so I remember when the Berlin Wall came down, I remember that uh, watching on my you know, tube TV as a, as a teenager. I remember nation after nation being free from the Soviet Union and trying to stumble through uh, forming a government, forming a free and democratic government, and country after country establishing themselves as free from the, the grip of the Soviet empire. And then to see now, you know, 30, 40 years later, that's starting to reverse. It just doesn't make any sense. We had been past this idea of empire building for 30 plus years, and to see that you know, now taking root, or at least the attempt to take root in Europe is so difficult to watch. Uh, we are witnessing something we'd never really thought we'd see in our lifetime, uh, the largest unprovoked invasion since 1938, a land war in Europe, a nuclear power threatening consequences unseen in human history, the seemingly you know, sought after rebuilding of a Soviet empire, and the reemergence of a Cold War, uh, the West versus Russia. I mean, we're just going backwards and it's hard to sort of process that. For those of you who are 50 years old and older like me, you remember the end of the Soviet Union. And uh, for those of you who are 40 years old and younger, this is all brand new to you and, and you're having to kind of go back in history books and well, what was the Soviet Union? and What was that like? And, and this whole concept of global empires, which we thought we were over, right? Uh, We know through human history that, you know, large part of history is just navigating empires. We have a small group of very powerful people wanting more, more power, more land, more authority, more wealth, more glory for themselves, kind of imagining themselves as almost gods. And this is the course of human history. And one of the great celebrations as we went from the 20th century to the 21st century is that can we be done with empire building? Can we be done with empire building? And from one corner of the world, the answer is not quite yet. Uh, What I'm hopeful for is this is sort of the last effort and the entire world says no. It's just not gonna happen. We are beyond that, beyond that. So while we have this great run of sort of post empire building, we see this step backwards. I think we have to be sober in saying, hey, listen, human nature is human nature. And we're not done with human nature quite yet. We're not done with the quest for power. We're not done with the quest for glory or fame. We're not done with the quest for riches at other people's expenses. We're not quite done yet, sadly. The normal course of humanity for the millennia, since the dawn of humanity, has been one of a struggle for power. Using people who are vulnerable to enrich the elite, to enrich the powerful. That's the course of human history, and we're not quite done with that yet. So it shouldn't be a shock to hear this sentence. The context of the entire Bible, the entire Bible is war. There's not a single syllable written in the Bible that is not in the context of war. Humankind is so obsessed with war uh, political lead- leaders and military leaders are so obsessed with more, more violence for more gain that the entire ancient scripture is written in the context of war, of conquest, of military invasion, military occupation, and military oppression. Now, some of that is some comfort for the people of Ukraine because they can look right to their Bible, and so many of them have a Christian background at least. They look at their Bible, they look to the hope of the Bible because in the midst of the context of war, cover to cover, Genesis to Revelation they're finding hope. Hope in the promises, hope in the presence of God, hope of the words of the scripture that give comfort in times of war. So I'm gonna just take you on a brief journey through the entire Bible um, to tell you about the context of war. First five books of the Bible, the books of the law, were given to a people group who were escaping military oppression. They were escaping military oppression, and God says, here's your law, here's your civil code to keep you prosperous. Here it is, first five books of the Bible. Then you have the middle section of your Bible, which is Joshua, Judges, the Samuels, the Kings, the Chronicles. This middle section of your Old Testament is the history of Israel then being the conqueror. First five books of the Bible, they were conquered, escaping that, middle books of your Old Testament, they're now the conqueror. The 17 prophets of the Old Testament are saying, hey, listen, Israel, you're about to be conquered again and they were. So that's basically your Old Testament. You don't have to read it now. No, not, yeah, you do. Uh, read it for yourself. But that's the story, right? It's the story of a people group navigating being oppressed, then being the conqueror, and then being conquered again. That is the narrative of the Old Testament in short. Then you turn the page to the New Testament, which began 400 years after the Old, and you see Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, born in the context of military oppression. Rome had uh, invaded Uh, about a a century earlier than that and they were occupying brutally the people of Israel and that's where Jesus was born. Then you have the book of Acts and the uh, 21 letters of the New Testament and that is written to a church that continues to be under the military oppression of the Roman Empire. They were persecuted by the Roman Empire. And then you have the book of Revelation, the final book of the Bible, uh, which is among my favorite for reasons other than you might think, but the book of Revelation in my not humble opinion at all Is apocryphal uh, or apocalyptic literature illustrating in the form of a story the struggle between Rome and the church? That is how to read Revelation. It is in story form the struggle between Rome and the church in the first century. So, the entire context of the Bible, cover to cover, Genesis to Revelation, is written in the context of war, invasion, injustice, and the brutality of conflict, right? So I believe that the Bible can only be truly understood in the context of war, invasion, and occupation, which is why again, the Ukrainians are, are looking to scripture and being sent scripture and quoting scripture and writing hymns out of the scripture in their context of war. It's resonating, the Bible is coming alive because it is all written in the context of war. I think it is much more difficult to understand the Bible during times of peace I have a lot of hot takes on that. I wish I could share them with you, but I can't. I don't have time. But when we try to interpret the Bible written in the context of war during times of peace, all kinds of weird interpretations happen. That is for another time and place. So the Bible is written in the context of war and is of particular comfort to people who are now the victims of war itself. So if we're gonna understand the Bible, we have to understand its context. And because it is in a context of war and invasion and military oppression, it's, it's wonderful for people who are uh, enduring that because it brings them such hope and comfort, but it's also good for us to kind of be sober-minded and to say, all right, listen, human nature is that of war. We're not over this yet, and the Scripture speaks so clearly to it. So it gives us comfort here on the other side of the world. There are essentially two storylines in the Bible. So again, we're just going to run it through the context of the Bible, and you will understand the big picture. There are two storylines in the Bible, Fortunately, one is in the Old Testament, one is in the New Testament, it's pretty clean. Old Testament speaks of an Old Covenant, New Testament speaks of a New Covenant, two distinct storylines in the Bible, both have to do with war, invasion, oppression, and brutality, ready? Storyline number one, Old Testament, Old Covenant. This is the summary of the entirety of the Old Testament. Israel is freed from military domination to establish military domination. That is the Old Testament, let me run through it quick. First, God promises the land of Canaan to the 12 Abrahamic tribes called Israel. God tells uh, Abraham and his family, his 12 tribes of Israel, you will get this piece of property called Canaan, roughly modern day Israel. Genesis 17. God says, I will give you the entire land of Canaan, where you now live as a foreigner, to you and to your descendants. It will be their possession forever, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, your responsibility is to obey the terms of the covenant. So this is known as a conditional covenant. Uh, Again, in the first five books of the Bible, God gives uh, Israel a civil code called the law. Abraham, as long as you obey the civil code, you're gonna prosper because you're gonna be a country of law and order. You're gonna know how to treat each other. You're gonna know how to live civilly, right? As long as you hold to this civil code for Israel, Israel will prosper. You abandon this civil code, you will not prosper. So that's a deal. It's a conditional covenant, uh, and that is the story of the Old Testament. When does Israel obey that civil code? When they don't, when they obey, they tend to be prosperous. When they disobey, they tend to not be. That's just the, the rhythm of the Old Testament. Then the superpower takes them over. A military superpower enslaves Israel. Egypt enslaves Israel. Exodus 111. So the Egyptians made the Israelites their slaves. They appointed brutal slave drivers over them, hoping to wear them down with crushing labor. They are controlled by brutal military uh, forces. Then God frees Israel from Egypt. This is the great Exodus. This is Moses, right? in the burning bush and the 10 plagues and the let my people go. The Lord told Moses, "'I have certainly seen the oppression "'of my people in Egypt. "'I have heard their cries of distress "'because of their harsh slave drivers. Yes, I'm aware of their suffering, so I have come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians and lead them out of Egypt into their own fertile and spacious land that I promised Abraham, right? So these are passages, you know, that the Ukrainians are kind of looking to, that during times of unjust uh, military oppression, there is this hope of better days ahead. So God miraculously delivers uh, Israel from military oppression in Egypt, then Israel becomes a military power, a conquering Canaan. Uh, Exodus 17, Joshua, this great Israelite general, overwhelmed the armies of Amalek in battle. He said, they have raised their fists against the Lord's throne. So now the Lord will be at war with Amalek generation after generation. This is kind of your standard empire building, right? You have a mission from God to take this land and they did. And they subjugated upwards of a dozen tribes in the land of Canaan to take it, Uh, from those people. Then Israel expands its political and military boundaries. And the largest boundaries uh, ever in the history of Israel were under King Solomon around 1000 BC, give or take. 1 Kings 4 details this. By the way, 1 Kings 4.21 is the high watermark of the nation of Israel in terms of their military conquest and power. Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the Euphrates River in the north to the land of the Philistines and the border of Egypt in the south. Uh, The conquered people of those lands sent tribute money to Solomon and continued to serve him throughout his lifetime. So Solomon's dad, King David, uh, as the scripture says, was a man with blood on his hands. He was a man of war and he took the land by military force. He passed away. His son Solomon takes uh, the land, and he's not a man of war. He's a man of wisdom. He's a man of negotiation. He's a man of trade. And so he takes the benefits of King David's bloodshed and warfare, and he now leverages that to make a ton of money, right? So the legend is he's richest man perhaps who ever lived, and he is making trades not just with uh, the tribes inside of this border that he conquered, but even beyond that, you know, a thousand women in his harem, just all kinds of disgusting stuff, right? This is just the height of power, money, land, using and abusing people. I mean, that is the narrative of the scripture. That lasts a single generation, right? And this passage even said, this lasted as long as he lived. About a half second after Solomon dies, I mean, his sons make a mess of it, uh, the kingdom becomes divided, their borders start shrinking, shrinking, they're fighting each other, and war looms on the edges. And by the end of the New Testament Israel is in uh, Old Testament Israel is invaded and conquered by both the Assyrians and the Babylonians. The last sentence of the Old Testament is this. God says, "I will come and strike the land with a curse." The end. So if you were to just take a look at the Old Testament, this kind of military narrative Israel promised land, then they're subjugated by military power in Egypt, and they're free from that military power, then they become the conquerors, and then they become the conquered. And the last sentence of the Old Testament, God says, I will come and strike the land with a curse. The end, you close your Old Testament, and you should have one phrase circling in your brain, and that is, well, that didn't work at all. Didn't work. This whole arrangement that if people will follow this law Then they will succeed militarily. If people follow this law, this tribe follows this law, they will succeed financially, right? That kind of deal, that kind of old conditional covenant just didn't work. Just didn't work. The Old Testament ends with 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel completely wiped out the face of the earth. The remaining two tribes of Israel conquered by Babylon. The small remnant of Israel once again subjugated by empire. Empire and the Old Testament ends. And between the Old Testament and the New Testament is 400 years where Israel is uh, uh, conquered and and overlorded over by um, uh, uh, Persia, by Greeks, and by the Romans. Now, in all of that tragedy, and and there's just so much tragedy throughout the Old Testament, in all that tragedy and all that warfare and all of that violence, two things emerge as a thread that we can take hope in right now and the Ukrainians can take hope in right now One of which is is simply this, that God is present and God gives comfort and peace in times of war. And so throughout the Old Testament, particularly in the Psalms, I mean, I think half the Psalms are written during times of intense warfare, seeking, you know, God's comfort, seeking God's peace, crying out to God. There's great comfort in the presence of God during times of war. Psalm 9 is one example. He, God, will judge the world with justice and rule the nations with fairness. The Lord is a shelter for the oppressed, a refuge in times of trouble. For he who avenges murder cares for the helpless. He does not ignore the cries of those who suffer." So you can just kind of imagine Ukrainian families, right? Ukrainian mothers and children maybe trying to escape Ukraine into Poland or maybe hiding underground in subway tunnels, hearing this passage that God will judge injustice. And that is a constant threat. Those who are the the perpetrators of violence, those who are the perpetrators of war, those who are the perpetrators of injustice and suffering on the earth, there will be a judgment on those people. And we just have to trust. May not be this side of eternity, but we just have to trust. God is judge and he will rule with fairness. And in the meantime, he will comfort people who are oppressed. He will comfort the victims. You can see how this would be of so much comfort to those in Ukraine. And then for those of us on the other side of the world who are just helplessly watching, wondering what we can do, well, we can hope with them. The second thread in the Old Testament during times of war is that there is a promise. A savior will establish a kingdom apart from the military might of King David. That's a promise that just shines in the middle of the Old Testament. It shines in the middle of a context of war. So here is King David He he sees the land of Canaan by force, blood on his hands. And David's a man after God's own heart. And he says, God, I want to build you a temple. I want to build you a place of worship. And God says, nope, you're a man of war. A man of war is not going to build a place of worship. So that's going to fall on your descendants. That's going to fall on your son. So this kind of prophecy goes out to David. It says this. When you die, King David, and are buried with your ancestors, I will raise up one of your descendants, your own offspring, and I will make his kingdom strong. Your house and your kingdom will continue before me for all time, and your throne will be secure forever. Now, you look at that and you would say, okay, well, the plain reading of that is the descendant of David, who will establish a kingdom, is going to be Solomon, his son. Solomon did have the kingdom established. Solomon did set up kind of a permanence, sort of, for one generation. Solomon did build a temple and a place of worship, but did Solomon establish a kingdom that lasts forever? What's the answer? No. So sort of in part, that was fulfilled through Solomon, but there's also this idea that another son would come, another descendant of David would come. Uh, Who do you think that might be? Just, yeah, Jesus. All right, thank you, you got that. Jesus that verse is actually quoted at the birth of jesus at the birth of jesus this is quoted that a son would come and his name is not solomon his name is jesus god says to mary the mother of jesus you will conceive and give birth to a son and you will name him jesus he will be very great and will be called the son of the most high the lord god will give him the throne of his ancestor david and he will reign over israel forever the kingdom will never end. The kingdom of Jesus will never end. And that's the second storyline. The first storyline was about Israel trying to gain military domination. The second storyline is the storyline of Jesus. Jesus leads the militarily oppressed into a new kind of freedom. Every syllable of the New Testament is about Jesus offering the militarily oppressed a whole new kind of kingdom, a kingdom that is not built by blood and war in the line of David, but a kingdom in the line of Jesus, a kingdom built by peace and love and mercy and forgiveness. It's a new kind of kingdom that will last forever. God's eternal kingdom would not be through war, but through peace. And so Jesus is called the Prince of Peace. And so here you have the Prince of Peace born into governmental and military oppression, right? Jesus is born under Roman oppression. He's born under military rule. He's born uh, and raised and ministers under the brutal regime of the Roman Empire who led with violence and power and crushed their enemies. That's Jesus, a peasant born under Roman domination. And Jesus became a threat to Rome not because he was calling his people to swords, he was not calling his people to bloodshed. He was calling his people to peace. He was calling to people, calling people to love. He was calling people to grace. He was calling people to forgiveness, not only to be forgiven by God, but to forgive others and to forgive our enemies, to bring peace to the world. The new eternal kingdom that Jesus came to establish was not of warfare, not of violence, not through politics, not through national borders, but through love. That's the new kingdom, the new covenant found in the New Testament that would actually last forever. So here we have this amazing collision between Pontius Pilate, the the you know, kind of the symbol of the the power of the Roman Empire in Jerusalem. And here you have Jesus, a Jewish peasant. Never lifted a sword, never caused harm, never caused violence, and they meet because Rome had had enough with Jesus. Jesus was creating a following, right? And they were calling him king of the Jews and Rome is not wanting any competition, so they're nervous. Rome installed religious leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They were in alliance together to subjugate the the people. So using the name of God to keep them under control. So the Romans and the Jewish leaders were in this, you know, alliance together to subjugate the Jewish people. And so here Jesus is emerging and thousands of people are following him. He's preaching love and peace and forgiveness and kindness. And people are flocking to Jesus, calling him king of the Jews, which freaks out the the Roman authorities. He's creating this incredible movement, right, of God, which is freaking out the uh, religious authorities. And they both conspire to put him to death. So here's Jesus with Pontius Pilate. Pilate went back to his headquarters and called for Jesus to be brought to him. Are you the king of the Jews, he asked. You can kind of imagine, here's Pilate with Roman garrisons asking a Jewish peasant, basically penniless and powerless, are you the king of the Jews? It's almost silly. And Jesus answers, my kingdom is not an earthly kingdom. If it were, my followers would fight to keep me from being handed over to the Jewish leaders. Jesus says, I'm not here to fight. I'm not here to pick up swords. I'm no threat to your armies. But he says, I am the king of a kingdom, but my kingdom is not of this world. God through Jesus came to establish a whole new kingdom, not of armies, not of nations, not of borders, not of war, but a new kingdom of love that will include everybody, everywhere, learning to be loved by God unconditionally, learning to know that that God is a heavenly father, learning to know that God is for us, never against us. He does not condemn us. We don't have to live in shame. We don't have to live with guilt. We can embrace his love, embrace his forgiveness, and then we can bend that out towards the world around us and then just watch the world change. It's this countercultural movement. That's not about any human power, but it's about the power of God, the power of Jesus, and the love of Jesus through us being shared with the world. And so after the crucifixion of Jesus, as every religious and political power kind of bore in on him and took his life, on the third day, rises from the dead, gives this new church his spirit, and says, continue my work of love on this earth. And this message starts going out in the streets in Acts chapter 13, get this. Here's the preaching of the message of Jesus, this eternal kingdom of heaven. Listen to this. Brothers, sons of Abraham, Israel, And also you God-fearing Gentiles, which means everybody who's not a Jew, everyone, every tribe, every tongue, every nation, everyone, everywhere, listen, brothers. Listen to the message of salvation that has been sent to us. Once again, listen. We are here to proclaim that through this man, Jesus, there is forgiveness of your sin. And everyone who believes in him is declared right with God, something the law of Moses could never do. You see what Jesus is doing? The law of Moses... The Old Testament can't forgive sin, can't bring people together, that didn't work. But the Old Testament, the Old Covenant does promise that not only is there comfort in times of distress, but there is a new covenant coming through a new kind of king, installing a new kind of kingdom, and that is Jesus Christ himself. And when we receive the love of Christ, believe the love of Christ, the entire world changes, right? And it begins on a very personal level. If there is anyone here live or online, anyone here who believes right now at this moment that God is disappointed with you, I'm asking you to believe something different. He is not. If you believe because of the things you have done that God is separate from you, I'm asking you to change what you believe because he is not. Jesus came to be the full expression of the grace of God in your life. And Jesus, the fullness of divinity, holding the very words of God, says to you and says to me, God is a father and he loves you. No matter what you have done, Jesus pursues you and says, I just want you to know you are loved. I just want you to know you're forgiven. I just want you to know you don't have to live in guilt. You don't have to live in shame. You don't have to live in fear at all. You don't have to live in fear of God that he's gonna get you or condemn you now or forever. You don't have to live in fear. Stop it. Just rest in the love and the grace and the goodness and the forgiveness of God. And that's why when Jesus was on this earth, he went to everyone he could who would be considered an outcast or cursed or not good enough. Uh, Where the religious people said, oh, you're a sinner and you're separated and we're gonna judge you. Those are the people Jesus went to. And Jesus went to them and loved them and forgave them and lifted them up and said, now let's walk a whole new life together and enjoy the ride. It begins with a very personal piece it says, God, I am gonna believe the message and ministry of Jesus. I am loved, I'm forgiven, end of story. I accept that love. And we ex- when we accept that love, we have this whole new power now, a whole new capacity that says, you know what? If I'm loved that much by God, this good, good father, if I'm loved that much from God, I can love you. I can forgive you. I can live at peace with you. And then the world just starts to change, person by person and family by family, as we try to you know, just grow more fond of God's love for us and then grow more fond of loving others. As Jesus says, even loving our enemies, building bridges, not looking for reasons to divide over all kinds of ridiculous religious things or political things, just works of men just trying to divide each other. I mean, all of these these forces at work, political forces, religious forces, are just designed to pull us apart. We're the good guys. You're the bad guys. We're the right ones. You're the wrong ones. And they're, they're, they're pulling us apart. But Jesus says there's a whole new kingdom, not of division, but of unity, all tribes, all tongues, all nations, rich and poor, and men and women, everyone, everywhere, enjoying being loved by God and enjoying loving the world around us. Now, to be clear, there is a time to fight for your country. And just driving into church this morning, it seems as though Ukrainians are, are really struggling to fight for their country. There's a time for that. But in the midst of that, let the peace of God in the scripture cover to cover and the promise of God in the scripture cover to cover, whether you're a Ukrainian fighting on the front lines or whether you are a Temeculan and Marietta in here in this valley feeling helpless about what we could possibly do to help, just let the comfort and peace of God fill you up, that even in times of strife, there can be peace. Even in times of war, we can sense that God is here and he cares and he's hearing the cries of the suffering. And there is hope ahead that one day things will be better. So what can we do specifically? We can pray for Ukraine and that deeply, deeply matters. Um, For days and days, in fact, weeks, I've been just praying in my walks and my quiet times for the people of Ukraine as they were preparing for what might come and now enduring what, it, what has come. We can pray for Ukraine. I would strongly encourage you to support Ukraine online. That really matters. This world is very small because of online social media. Every time you post something or like something about Ukraine, supporting the people of Ukraine, it tells everyone that they are not alone. It matters deeply. We can give. Uh, we have partnered with Send International for quite some time. We have a missionary from Rancho who is serving with Send International. Send International has a huge presence in Ukraine in relationship with the Ukrainian people, if you go to send.org, you can help directly that organization, help directly the people of Ukraine. And we can be hopeful always. Hope is a choice. Hope just doesn't come to us. What comes to us is hopelessness, right? Fear just comes to us. Despair just comes to us, right? Feeling kind of paralyzed just kind of comes to us. Anxieties come to us. What's a choice that pushes through all that is hope. Don't wait for hope to just arise. You gotta make hope happen. You have to just declare hope, right? And so I'm asking you to declare, always be hopeful. Throughout the course of human history, there are wars, there's injustice, there's violence, and it might seem as though things for a time are hopeless. Fears may enter our heads about what's to come, Do not get sucked in by hopelessness. Do not think this world is coming to this tragic, violent end. Stop it. Don't do it. I don't allow it, right? Never lose hope. The scripture is mightily clear. Better days are ahead. I love and frankly obsess on Ephesians 1, 9, and 10. God has revealed the plan that is his great pleasure. This plan is the great pleasure of God that at the right time, he will bring everything together under the authority of Christ, everything. Everything in heaven and on earth together in Christ. That's a pretty hopeful declaration. Are they experiencing that in Ukraine right now? No. Is there hope that in time, they might experience heaven and earth merging and the only law of heaven, which is love, being fully realized on the earth? We can hope and pray that those days are available for them as well. As the long arc of history takes us forward to this beautiful biblical merging of heaven and earth, don't lose hope. Let's be for this world, never against it. Let's advance the cause of Christ through mercy and justice and love, even when things in pockets of the world don't seem to be going so well, never ever lose hope. We're gonna close in a time of communion together, which is really the source of our hope, is being with Jesus at that Last Supper table. If you need a communion cup, just raise your hand and um, someone will give one to you. Just raise your hand up up front here, Matthew. Anybody else? A couple up front. Um, Some over here as well. Jesus gathered his disciples together uh, just before his crucifixion. Uh, Matthew, I'm sending you southwest. (laughs) I, there you go. <laughs> By the way, Matthew's on our tech team and just does a fantastic job. Jesus was with um, his disciples in the upper room and they were celebrating the Passover meal together. And the Passover meal was a celebration of freedom. The Passover meal, the bread and the wine and the lamb, all of it was to celebrate that God delivered them from a military oppression in Egypt. And when Jesus was with his disciples, he said, this bread that we eat at Passover it's gonna be something brand new. This bread that we're eating at Passover is to remind you of my body, which is broken for you. Jesus was hours away from the crucifixion, hours away from the crucifixion. And so you can take that bread, there's a thin piece of plastic on top, take that bread and break it, and eat this in remembrance of the gift of the broken body of Jesus Christ. Jesus bore the worst of human suffering on the cross. He bore the worst of oppression on the cross. He bore the worst of human power and military might on the cross. And at the Last Supper, he says, this wine of the Passover meal is to remind you that my blood is to be shed for you. This is the full measure of the love that God has for us that he would give his only son to be the victim of the world's worst oppression to show how much we're loved by God. So take this and drink this in remembrance of Jesus. And as you know, on that Friday, Jesus' life was taken by Roman rule, by religious rule on the cross. And on that third day, Sunday morning, he was raised from the dead. And the resurrected Jesus now lives in us and through us to bring peace to the world. I'm gonna pray and we're gonna close in a a quiet, simple song about the forever promise of God to establish a kingdom without end. And so let's set our hearts to close out our time together. God, we thank you for the gift of grace and forgiveness and love through Christ Jesus, your son. We gather every week to honor him, to lift up his name, to hear from him, and, and to strive by the power of your spirit, the power of your word, and the power of one another to advance the cause of Christ, the cause of mercy, the cause of justice, the cause of love. So we pray for your mercy for the Ukrainian people who are battling for their country. We pray for your grace upon families who are losing loved ones. We pray that there would be an end to this conflict that advances good and not evil. We pray they would know that they are not alone, that the world is in fact with them. We pray that you would give us hope as we helplessly watch from halfway around the world, give us hope that there is not despair ahead, that there is not hopelessness ahead, but that there is this brand new kingdom that Jesus himself established and initiated 2,000 years ago at his death and resurrection that shouted to the whole world that there is perfect love in Jesus, selfless, sacrificial love, and there is perfect victory in Jesus, the resurrected Christ working through us to continue to establish this forever kingdom of love and grace and mercy. In Jesus' name, amen.